Section 14 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. As two anthologies. As two anthologies. Footnote number one. This essay was written as an introduction to the best of the world's classics. Ten volumes of prose selections published by Funk and Wagnalls. Ever since civilized man has had a literature, he has apparently sought to make selections from it and thus put his favorite passages together under one roof and in a compact and convenient form certain it is at least that to the greeks masters of all great arts we owe this habit they made such collections and named them after their pleasant imaginative fashion a gathering of flowers or what we borrowing their word call an anthology so to those austere souls who regard anthologies as a labor-saving contrivance for the benefit of persons who like a smattering of knowledge and are never really learned we can at least plead in mitigation that we have high and ancient authority for the practice in any event no amount of scholarly deprecation has been able to turn mankind or that portion of mankind which reads books from the agreeable habit of making volumes of selections and finding in them much pleasure as well as improvement in taste and knowledge with the spread of education and with the enormous increase of that literature among all civilized nations more especially since the invention of printing and its vast multiplication of books the making of volumes of selections comprising what is best in one's own or in many literatures is no longer a mere matter of taste or convenience as with the greeks but has become something a little short of necessity in this world of many workers comparatively few scholars and still fewer intelligent men of leisure anthologies have been multiplied like all other books and in the main they have done much good and little harm the man who thinks he is a scholar or highly educated because he is familiar with what is collected in a well-chosen anthology of course errs grievously such familiarity no more makes one a master of literature than a perusal of a dictionary makes the reader master of style but as the latter pursuit can hardly fail to enlarge a man's vocabulary so the former adds to his knowledge increases his stock of ideas liberalizes his mind and opens him to new sources of enjoyment the habit of the greeks was to bring together selections of verse passages of especial merit epigrams and short poems in the main their example has been followed from their days down to the elegant extracts in verse of our grandmothers and grandfathers and thence on to our own time with its admirable golden treasury and oxford handbook of verse there has been no end to the making of poetical anthologies and apparently no diminution in their public appetite for them poetry indeed lends itself to selection 
much of the best poetry of the world is contained in short poems complete in themselves and capable of transference bodily to a volume of selections there are very few poets of whose quality and genius a fair idea cannot be given by a few judicious selections a large body of noble and beautiful poetry of verse which is a joy forever can also be given in a very small compass and the mechanical attribute of size it must be remembered is very important in making successful anthology for an essential quality of a volume of selections is that it should be easily portable that it should be a book which can be slipped into the pocket and readily carried about in any wanderings whether near or remote an anthology which is stored in one or more huge and heavy volumes is practically valueless except to those who have neither books nor access to a public library or who think that a stately tome printed on calendared paper and profusely illustrated is an ornament to a centre table in a parlour rarely used except on funereal or other official occasions i have mentioned these advantages of verse for the purpose of an anthology in order to show the difficulties which must be encountered in making a prose selection very little prose is to be found in small parcels which can be transferred entire and therefore with the very important attribute of completeness to a volume of selections from most of the great prose writers it is necessary to take extracts and the chosen passage is broken off from what comes before and after the fame of a prose writer as a rule rests on a book and really to know him the book must be read and not merely selected passages extracts give no very satisfactory idea of paradise lost or divine comedy and the same is true of extracts from a history or a novel it is possible by spreading prose selections through a series of small volumes to conquer the mechanical difficulty and thus make the selections in form what they ought above all things to be companions and not books of reference or table decorations but the spiritual or literary problem is not so easily overcome what prose to take and where to take it are by no means easy questions to solve they are well worth solving so far as patient effort can do it for in this period of easy printing it is desirable to put in convenient form before those who read examples of the masters which will draw us back from the perishing chatter of the moment to the literature which is the highest work of civilization and which is at once noble and lasting upon that theory this collection has been formed it is an attempt to give examples from all periods and languages of western civilization of what is best and most memorable in their prose literature that the result is not complete exhibition of the time and the literatures covered by the selections no one is better aware than the editors inexorable conditions of space make a certain degree of incompleteness inevitable when he who is gathering flowers traverses so vast a garden and is obliged to store the results of his labors within such narrow bounds the editors are also fully conscious that like all other similar collections this one too will give rise to the familiar criticism and questionings as to why such a passage was omitted and another inserted why this writer was chosen and that other passed by in literature we all have our favorites and even the most catholic of us has his 
dislikes if not his pet aversions i will frankly confess that there are authors represented in these volumes whose writings i should avoid just as there are certain towns and cities of the world which having once visited them i should never willingly return for the simple reason that i would not voluntarily subject myself to seeing or reading what i dislike or which is worse what bores and fatigues me no editor of an anthology must seek to impose upon others his own tastes and opinions he must at the outset remember and never afterward forget that so far as possible his work must be free from the personal equation he must recognize that some authors who may be mute or dull to him have a place in literature past or present sufficiently assured to entitle them to a place among selections which are attended above all things else to be representative to those who wonder why some favorite of their own was omitted while something else for which they do not care at all has found a place i can only say that the editors having suppressed their own personal preferences have proceeded on certain general principles which seem to be essential in making any selection either of verse or prose which shall possess broader and more enduring qualities than that of being a mere exhibition of the editor's personal taste to illustrate my meaning emerson's parnassus is extremely interesting as an exposition of the tastes and preferences of a remarkable man of great original genius as an anthology it is a failure for it is of awkward size is ill arranged and contains selections made without system and which in many cases baffle all attempts to explain their appearance on the other hand mr palgrave neither a very remarkable man nor a very great and original genius gave us in the first golden treasury a collection which has no interest whatsoever as reflecting the tastes of the editor but which is quite perfect in its kind bearing the disproportionate amount of wordsworth which includes some of his worst things and which be it said in passing was due to mr palgrave's giving way to that point to his personal enthusiasm the golden treasury in form in scope and in arrangement as well as in most unerring taste is the best model of what an anthology should be and which is found in any language returning now to our questioner who misses some favorites and finds something else which he dislikes the only answer as i have just said is that the collection is formed on certain general principles as any similar collection of the sort must be this series is called the best of the world's classics and classics is not used in the narrow and technical sense but rather in that of thoreau who defined classics as the noblest recorded thoughts of mankind therefore the first principle of guidance and selection is to take examples of the great writings which have moved and influenced the thought of the world and which have preeminently the quality of high seriousness as required by aristotle this test alone however would limit the selections too closely therefore the second principle of choice is to make selections from writers historically important either personally or by their writings the third rule is to endeavor to give selections which shall be representative of the various literatures and the various periods through which the collection ranges 
lastly and this applies of course only to passages taken from the writers of england and the united states the effort has been given specimens of the masters of english prose of that prose in its development and at its best and to show so far as may be what can be accomplished with that great instrument and what a fine style really is as exhibited in the best models everything contained in these volumes is there in obedience to at least one of these principles many in obedience to more than one some in conformity to all four no one will become a scholar or master of any of the great literatures here represented by reading this collection literature and scholarship are not to be had so cheaply as that yet is there much profit to be had from these little volumes they contain many passages which merit dr johnson's fine saying about books that they help us to enjoy life or teach us to endure it to the man of letters to the man of wide reading they will at least serve to recall when far from libraries and books those authors who have been the delight and the instructors of a lifetime they will surely bring with them the pleasures of memory and that keener delight which arises when we meet a poem or passage of prose which we know as an old and well-loved friend remote from home upon some alien page to that larger public whose lives are not spent among books and libraries and for whose delectation such a collection as this is primarily intended these volumes rightly read at odd times in idle moments in out-of-the-way places on the ship or the train offer much they will bring the reader in contact with many of the greatest intellects of all time they contain some of the noblest thoughts that have passed through the minds of our weak and erring race there is no man who will not be the better for the moment at least by reading what cicero says about old age seneca about death and socrates about love to go no further for examples than to the glory that was greece and the grandeur that was rome moreover the bowing acquaintance which can be formed here may easily offer attractions which will lead to a close and intimate friendship with all that the word implies in the case of a great author or a great book it seems to me for example that if no one who reads here the brief extracts from erasmus or from cervantes to take at random two writers widely separated in thought could fail to pursue the acquaintance thus begun so potent are the sympathetic charm the wit the wisdom and the humor of both of these great men there is at least variety in these little volumes and while many things in them may not appeal to us they may to our neighbor that which is dumb to us may speak to him again let it be noticed that there is much more than high seriousness which is the test of the greatest prose as of the finest poetry humor and pathos tragedy and comedy all find their place and glimpses of the pageant of human history flit through the pages it would seem as if it were impossible to read extracts from thucydides and tacitus and gibbon and not long to go to their histories and read all that could be said by such men about the life of man upon earth about athens and rome and the rise and fall of empires selections are unsatisfying and the better they are the more unsatisfying they become but this is in reality their true merit they have much beauty in themselves they awaken pleasant memories 
they revive old delights but above all if rightly read they open the gates to the illimitable gardens whence all the flowers which have here been gathered may be found blooming in radiance unplucked and unbroken and rooted in their native soil the most important part of the collection is that which gives selections from those writers whose native tongue is english no translation even of prose can ever quite reproduce its original and as a rule cannot hope to equal it there are many translations notably the elizabethan which are extremely fine in themselves and memorable examples of english prose still they are not the original writings something escapes in the translation into another tongue an impalpable something which cannot be held or transmitted the bible stands alone a great literary monument of the noblest and most beautiful english which has formed english speech and become a part of the language as it is the thought and emotion of the people who read the king james version in all parts of the globe yet we know that this version which the people so fortunate in its possession wisely and absolutely declined to give up in exchange for any revision is neither an accurate nor faithful reproduction of its original therefore putting aside the english bible as wholly by itself it may be safely said that the soul of a language and the beauties of style which is capable of exhibiting can only be found and studied in the productions of writers who not only think in the language in which they write but to whom the speech is native the inalienable birthright and heritage of their race or country in such writers we get not only the thought the humor or pathos and all that can be transferred in a translation but also the pleasure to the ear akin to music the sense of form the artistic gratification which form brings all those attributes which are possible in the highest degree to those only to whom the language is native for these reasons as will be readily understood in making selections from those writers whose mother tongue is english specimens have been given of all periods from the earliest time and occasionally of authors who would not otherwise find a place in such a collection for the purpose of tracing and outline the development of english prose and the formation of an english style which like all true and great styles is peculiar to the language and cannot be reproduced in any other this is not the place nor would it be feasible with any reasonable limits to narrate the history of english prose but in these selections it is possible to follow its gradual advance from its first rude and crude attempts through the splendid irregularities of the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries to the establishment of a standard style in the eighteenth and thence onward to the modifications and changes in that standard which extend to our own time the purpose of this collection is not didactic if it were it would be a schoolbook and not an anthology in the greek sense where the first principle was to seek what was of literary value artistic in expression and noble in thought yet the mere bringing together of examples of prose from the writings of the great masters of style cannot but teach a lesson never more needed than now i do not mean by this to suggest imitation of any writer nothing is more dangerous especially when the style of the writer imitated is peculiar and strongly marked that which is valuable and instructive is the opportunity given here for a study of fine english styles and in this way to learn the capabilities of the language and the general principles which have governed the production of the best english prose 
we have in the english language an unequalled richness of vocabulary far surpassing in extent that of any other it possesses a great literature and body of poetry unrivalled in modern times it is not only one of the strongest bonds of union in the united states but it is the language in which our freedom was won and in which our history and our laws are written it is our noblest heritage to weaken corrupt or deprave it would be a misfortune without parallel to our entire people yet we cannot disguise from ourselves the fact that the fertility of the printing press the multiplication of cheap magazines and the flood of printed words poured out daily in the newspapers all tend strongly in this direction direction this is an era of haste and hurry stimulated by the great inventions which have changed human environment form and style in any art require time and time seems the one thing we can neither spare nor wisely economize yet in literature above all arts to abandon form and style is inevitably destructive and entails misfortunes which can hardly be estimated for loose weak and vulgar writing is a sheer precursor of loose weak and vulgar thinking if form of expression is cast aside form in thought and in the presentation of thought is certain to follow against all this is the fine english prose amply represented in these selections offers a silent and convincing protest to every one who will read it attentively we can begin with the splendid prose of the age of elizabeth and of the seventeenth century it is irregular and untamed but exuberant and brilliant rich both in texture and substance we find it at its height in the strange beauties of sir thomas brown and the noble pages of milton stiff with golden embroidery as macaulay says and in the touching and beautiful simplicity of bunyan's childlike sentences thence we pass to the eighteenth century when english prose was freed from its involutions and irregularities and brought to uniformity and a standard the age of anne gave to english prose balance precision and settled form there have been periods in greater originality but the eighteenth century at least lived up to pope's doctrine set forth in the familiar line what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed as there is no better period to turn to for instruction than the age of anne so if we must choose a single writer there is no better master to be studied than swift there have been many great writers and many fine and beautiful styles since the days of the terrible dean of st patrick's from imposing and finely balanced sentences of gibbon to the subtle delicacy of hawthorne and the careful finish of robert louis stevenson but in swift better than any one writer we find the lessons which are so sorely needed now he had in the highest degree force clearness and concentration all combined with marvellous simplicity swift's style may have lacked richness but it never failed in taste there is not a line of false fine writing in all his books those are the qualities which are needed now simplicity and clearness and a scrupulous avoidance of that would-be fine writing which is not at all fine but merely vulgar and insincere the writing in our newspapers is where reform is particularly needed there are great journals here and there which maintain throughout a careful standard of good and sober english most of them unhappily are too often filled in the news columns at least with the strange jargon found nowhere else spoken by no one and never used in daily life by those who every night furnish it to the compositors it is happily compounded in about equal parts of turgid fine wilting vulgar jauntiness and indiscriminate slang 
the best i can show my meaning by an example a writer in a newspaper wished to state that a man who had once caused excitement by a book of temporary interest and who after the days of his notoriety were over lived a long and checkered career had killed himself this is the way he said it his life's work void of fruition and dissipated into emptiness his fondest hopes and ambitions crumbled and scattered shunned as a fanatic and unable to longer wage life's battle hinton rowan helper at one time united states consul general to buenos aires yesterday sought the darkest egress from his woes and disappointments a suicide's death in an unpretentious lodging-house in pennsylvania avenue near the capitol the man who as much as if not more than any other agitator is said to have blazed the way to the civil war the writer who stirred this nation to its core by his anti-slavery philippics and the promoter with the most gigantic railroad enterprise projected in the history of the world was found gripped in the icy hand of death the brain which gave birth to his historic writings had willed the stilling of the heart which for three quarters of a century had palpitated quick and high with roseate hopes that passage taken at hazard from a newspaper is intended i think to be fine writing of an imposing and dramatic kind why could not the writer have written it a little more carefully perhaps but still in just the language which we would have used naturally in describing the events to his friend or wife simply stated it would have been far more solemn and impressive than this turgid insincere account with its large words its forced note of tragedy and its split infinitive let me put beneath it another description of a deathbed the blood and spirits of lefebvre were waxing cold and slow and were retreating to their last citadel the heart rallied back the film forsook his eyes for a moment he looked up wistfully into my uncle toby's face then cast a look upon his boy and that ligament fine as it was was never broken nature instantly ebbed away the film returned to its place the pulse fluttered stopped went on throbbed stopped again moved stopped shall i go on no this famous passage is neither unintentional sentiment nor unaffected pathos the art is apparent even in the punctuation the writer meant to be touching and pathetic and to awaken emotions of tenderness and pity and he succeeded the description is all he meant it to be the extract from the newspaper arouses no emotion unless it be resentment at its form and leaves us cold and unmoved the other is touching and pitiful observe the manner in which stern obtains his effect to the perfect simplicity and good taste of every word the reserve the gentleness the utter absence of any straining for effect the one description died the day it appeared the other has held its place for a century and a half are not the qualities which produced such a result worth striving for let me take another haphazard selection from a description of a young girl entitled as such to everyone's kindness courtesy and respect in it occurs this sentence the college girl is grammatical in speech but she has the jolliest chummiest jargon of slang that ever rolled from under a pink tongue that articulate sound comes from beneath a tongue is at least novel and few persons are fortunate enough to be able to talk without that portion of their mouths but i have no desire to dwell either upon the anatomical peculiarities of the sentence or upon its abysmal vulgarity it is supposed to be effective 
it is what is appropriately called breezy it is a form of words which can be heard nowhere in the speech of men and women why should it be consigned to print it is possible to describe a young girl attractively and effectively in a much simpler fashion let me give an example not a famous passage at all from another writer she shocked no canon of taste she was admirably in keeping with herself and never jarred against the surrounding circumstances her figure to be sure so small as to be almost childlike and so elastic that motion seemed as easier or easier to it than the rest would hardly have suited one's idea of a countess neither did her face with brown ringlets on either side and a slightly piquant nose and wholesome in bloom and the clear shade of tan and the half-dozen freckles friendly remembrances of the april sun and breeze precisely give us the right to call her beautiful but there was both lustre and depth in her eyes she was very pretty as graceful as a bird and graceful much in the same way as pleasant about a house as a gleam of sunshine falling on the floor through a shadow of twinkling leaves or as a ray of firelight that dances on the wall while evening is drawing nigh contrast this with a newspaper sentence and the sensation is one of pain again i say observe the method by which hawthorne gets his effect the simplicity of the language the balance of the sentences the reserve the refinement and the final imaginative touch in the charming comparison with which the passage ends to blame the hard-working men who write for the day which is passing over them because they do not write like Stern and Hawthorne would be as absurd as it would be unjust. But they ought to recognize the qualities of fine English prose. They ought to remember that they can improve their readers by giving them good, simple English, pure and undefiled, and they ought not to debauch the public taste by vulgar fine writing and even more vulgar light writing in short they ought to write for the public as they would talk to their wives and children and friends a little more formally and carefully perhaps but in the same simple and direct fashion for the prolific authors of the flood of stories which every month bears its broad bosom many tons of advertisements no such allowances need be made they are not compelled to furnish copy between daylight and dark they need a course of study in english prose more than anyone else and they would profit by the effort as a class they seem like the young man in du maurier's picture who being asked if he had read thackeray replies no i never read novels i write them in this age of quickening movement and restless haste it is above all things important to struggle against the well-nigh universal inclination to abandon all efforts for form and style they are the true preservers of what is best in literature the salt which ought never to lose its savour those who use english in public speech and public writing have serious responsibility too generally forgotten and disregarded no single man can hope to effect much by any plea he can make in behalf of the use of good english whether written or spoken but no one i think can read the great masterpieces of english prose and not have both lesson and responsibility brought home to him he would be insensible indeed if he did not feel after such reading that he was a sharer in the noble heritage which it behooved him to guard and cherish if this series serves no other purpose it will exhibit to those who read it some of the splendors and the beauties of english prose it will at least open the gates of literature and perhaps lead 
lead its readers to authors they have not known before or recall the words of writers who have entered into their lives and thoughts and thus make them more mindful of the inestimable value to them and their children of the great language which is at once their birthright and their inheritance end of section fourteen